Praise the Lord. This is Andrew Womack, and this is our third tape in a series, a series of four that I'm doing, and the entire album is entitled, God Wants You Well. On this tape, I'll be talking about why isn't everyone healed? On our first tape, I established that healing is a part of Christ's atonement. Therefore, it's not optional. It's a done deal. On our second tape, we talked about things that people have used to try and counter that belief that healing has already been provided, and they use such thing as Paul's thorn in the flesh to say that God wills for us to be sick. God is using it to work some good in our life, and I tried to counter that with the Word, and hopefully you've already heard that and you've come into agreement with that. I really believe that these first two things that I've ministered are the foundation of healing. If Satan can get you to believe that God wants you sick, that there is some purpose in you being sick, that God is using it for some reason, well, then it's impossible for you to truly fight against that thing lest you fight against God. And so it renders you passive. And one of the scriptures that I've already used is James chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, Submit yourselves therefore unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You have to resist. The word resist means to actively fight against. If Satan can get us into a passive position to where we are just saying, well, whatever God wills, and we aren't actively fighting against him, then he can overcome us with sickness and all of the disease and things like this. And so we have to be able to know that when we are fighting sickness, that we are doing God's will, that we are not fighting against God, that we aren't being rebellious towards some type of correction or punishment that he's put in our life. And basically, religion today has said that sickness comes from God, that he uses it to work his will in our life, and that it's wrong to believe for healing. And that has to be totally eradicated before a person can truly believe and receive their healing. So those are the foundations. Now, once that's established and once a person really believes that, that doesn't mean that you're just automatically going to be healed. You have to believe that it's God's will, but then there's other things that are involved in healing to see it manifest. And on this tape, that's what we're going to be talking about. If it is God's will to heal, and if he's not the one that puts sickness on us, then why isn't every person healed? Well, first of all, let me just say this, that when Jesus was here on this earth, Every person who would allow Jesus to minister to them was healed. Jesus healed them all, and he didn't do that on just one occasion. He did it on a number of occasions. I use this same logic on the very first tape in this series entitled Healing is in Christ Atonement, and I use this logic to show that Jesus was the express image of the Father. He said, I do always those things which I see my Father do. And the very fact that Jesus healed all and never refused to heal a single person or never put sickness on a person should be proof enough that God is not the author of our sickness. So we've already used that logic. Real quickly, let me just mention that there are 17 times in the Gospels alone where Jesus healed all of the sick that were present. I want to just go through the book of Matthew. Now, there's also examples of this in Mark, Luke, and John. But let's just look at a couple of these in Matthew to establish this fact that Jesus did heal them all. And Jesus hasn't changed. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. He is not the one who has changed. It's his followers who have changed. We aren't representing the Lord the way that he really wants to be represented. And so it's not God who's not healing the sick today. It's his followers who aren't. I think that we have really fallen in this area. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. It's implied in this passage of Scripture that all kinds of sickness were brought to him, and he healed them all. It didn't say that he healed some. It says that he healed them. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, it says, And when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. This verse states very clearly that Jesus healed all that were sick, not some of them, all of them. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Man, what a powerful statement. We see that Jesus was healing them all. He didn't have just a few people who received, and then others who went away still sick. Jesus healed them all. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 15, it says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. This is talking about multitudes, and he healed them all. I tell you, it is God's will for you to be well. And when we look at the life of Jesus, he healed them all. There is never a single person that he refused to heal. There were some people who refused to receive healing, and I'll deal with that later, but he healed all that would receive his ministry. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14, it says, And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion towards them, and he healed their sick. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 34 through 36, it says, And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all the country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. In Matthew chapter 15 and in verse 30, it says, And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Again, implying that he healed every single one of them. In verse 31, here's the results. It says, Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Something that brought glory to God is not of the devil. How people can say that 
people being miraculously healed is of the devil, is nothing but a cop-out, an excuse for their powerlessness. It's a way to justify themselves, and to do it, they have to condemn those who are following the example of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, and verse 2, it says, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 14, says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So anyway, these are just a few of these 17 separate examples in the gospel where Jesus healed all that came to him. And since he said that he did exactly what he saw his father do, since Hebrews says that he was the express image of the father, then this shows that it is God's will to heal them all. But why don't we see every single person healed? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And I tell you, it's a simple question, but it has a complex answer to it. And I'm going to spend the rest of this tape dealing with that. Jesus' disciples basically asked him the exact same thing. In Matthew chapter 17, and in verse 19, it says, Then the disciples came to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? Now let me give you a little bit of background on this. Jesus, in the first part of this chapter, in the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew, had taken three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he went up into a mountain, and this is where he was transfigured. He literally began to radiate light. The Shekinah glory of God, a cloud, overshadowed Jesus and these three disciples, and an audible voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And so it was a miraculous time with the Lord and these three disciples. This is where Elijah... And Moses appeared and talked with Jesus about his uh, crucifixion, which was coming up shortly. And the disciples saw all this. But it says, when they were come down to the multitude, this is in Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. When they were come down to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. So while Jesus was on the mountain with these three disciples, the rest of the disciples were down below, and a man who had a boy who the scripture here says was lunatic, I've studied this out, most people believe that this was something like a seizure. This is described in Mark's account of this same instance in Mark chapter 9, and it says there that often he's thrown into the fire and often into the water. And so it's depicting something like a seizure, like epilepsy. So the father of this boy brought this boy to Jesus' disciples to cast this demon out, and they couldn't do it. And look at what Jesus' response to this was in Matthew 17, 17. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. I want you to notice that Jesus wasn't pleased with his disciples' inability to affect this healing. In other words, again, it's showing that Jesus, if he would have been there, he would have healed this boy, and later on he did. And he wasn't pleased at his disciples' inability to deal with this situation. Now, this is a completely different attitude than what most people have today. 
You know, most people, matter of fact, there's going to be people who will be critical of my teaching on this tape because I am teaching that it's God's will to heal every single one. And in an effort to explain why we don't see people healed, one of the obvious reasons is that people today aren't believing God for this. We are operating in unbelief. And rather than accept that, there's people who will criticize me and say, you aren't being compassionate. You are criticizing people. And you ought to have a compassionate response. You ought to just tell people that, oh, you're doing the best you can. That's fine. Well, how did Jesus respond? When Jesus found out that his disciples couldn't deal with this situation, he said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Do you really think that Jesus would have a more compassionate response to us today? Do you think that Jesus has changed and that now he doesn't want us to minister healing to people? Absolutely not. I tell you, the Lord loves us. I'm convinced of that. And even though I fail and I don't see all of the healings come to pass, and I mean, I've seen some people very, very close to me die, people that I loved with all of my heart, and I have to accept partial responsibility It's a complex issue. I'm not saying it's all my fault. It's all their fault. It's all anybody's fault. We're still learning, but I'm saying I know it was God's will for these people to be healed. I saw my dad die when I was 12 years old. I saw a girl that I was unofficially engaged to. I wasn't really engaged to her, but uh, I was in Vietnam, and her family told people I was engaged to her, and uh, we had thought about it and stuff, and I saw her die. I was with her when she strangled to death on her own blood. And we stood there for hours praying and believing for her to be raised from the dead. And you know what? I understand people wanting to dodge responsibility because they just can't cope. If they think that there was something they could have done to have stopped this, then it would just make them feel so guilty like I failed. Well, I believe that I did fail. I believe that not only me, but this girl... My father, others, we didn't appropriate what Jesus had provided for us. And yes, we were wrong. But am I condemned by that? No, I'm not condemned at all. I believe that God loves me. God has comforted me. But you know what? It has made me motivated to get in and learn what the Word of God says and not allow it to happen again. And I am motivated. I'm realizing it's not God who's letting people die. It's us. And it's because of our unbelief. And so Jesus said, you faithless and perverse generation. Today, when people come to the church, if they have a financial problem, the church will send them, you know, to the lenders. Well, have you been to the bank? Have you been to the social workers? If they're sick, they say, have you been to the doctor? What is he doing? Have you taken medication? Have you gotten an operation? If you are depressed and discouraged, well, have you taken any medicine for this? Have you gone to a psychiatrist? You need a shrink. You need therapy. In other words, the church has basically advocated our authority and responsibility for meeting the needs of people. And today, people feel like you are inconsiderate and not operating in compassion if you tell people that, hey, we've got responsibility here to minister to the sick and to do these things. But I'm wanting you to know that I've got the exact same attitude here that Jesus was talking about. Jesus wasn't pleased that his disciples couldn't affect this cure. The Lord is not pleased today that his disciples are not seeing all of the sick healed. It's God's will to heal every single person every single time. And the reason it doesn't happen isn't because God fails to do it. It's because his representatives aren't operating 
in the fullness of what he's provided for us. And that's tight, but it's right. Yes, it puts responsibility on me. Yes, it means that I've missed it. Yes, it means that other people have missed it. But you know what? I'd rather maintain God's integrity than my integrity. I tell you, God is a good God, and it is not God who is causing people to die. God is not the one that's putting cancer on them. God is not the one who's giving AIDS. That's not the way that it is. Real quickly, let me just take a little rabbit trail here, and I'll be right back to this story of the disciples asking why they couldn't cast out these demons. Let me just say that there's three main reasons. Now, there's you could divide it more than this, but there are three major categories are three main reasons why people get sick. One of them is sin. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 14, after he had healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, he said, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. So he made it very clear right there that sickness and this sickness returning and even something worse than the palsy that this man had had could come on him if he sinned. So Jesus linked sickness to sin. Now, that's not the only reason that people get sick, but that is one reason. When a person goes out, you know, a person is an alcoholic and he drinks all of his life and he gets a liver disease, he did that to himself. I mean, Satan used his actions to gain access to him, and he has liver disease, not because God did it, not because the devil did it directly, but it's just sin. He's reaping the results of his sin. Drug abusers get brain damage. They get uh, diseases that are transmitted through shared needles. Sexually promiscuous people get sexually transmitted diseases. This isn't happening because Satan is judging them. It's them doing it to themselves. They open up a door through sin. Secondly, the second major area that pe- reason that people get sick is just because we are in a battle with the devil. Some people aren't aware of this, but it is not just physical, everything that goes on. There is a spiritual war raging. There are godly angels who carry out God's will. There are demonic spirits who carry out Satan's will. There is a battle going on, and I believe that sometimes Satan just fights against us, and it's not based on an individual sin that we do. You could say, in a sense, that it's sin-based because Satan was loosed into this earth through sin, but it's not necessarily your individual sin. This is what Jesus talked about in the ninth chapter of the book of John when there was a man at the gate of the temple and he had been uh, blind from his mother's womb, and the disciple says, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And he says, it's not either one of them. Now, that you know that he's not saying there that this man or his parents had not sinned, because the scripture says in Romans 3:23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So yes, there was sin in their life, but what he was saying was it wasn't their sin that caused this boy to be born blind. It just happened. There is a spiritual battle going on, and Satan is going about seeking whom he may devour. So sin is one reason people get sick. Another reason is it's not sin. It's just you're living in a fallen world, and there are spiritual battles, and sometimes Satan just attacks you with things. It is nothing but a direct attack from the devil. Thirdly, the third main reason that people get sick is just natural things. Now, this is something that a lot of spirit-filled Christians haven't really taken into account. 
because they recognize that, yes, sin is an inroad of Satan into our life, and it allows him to do things. They recognize we're in a spiritual battle, and Satan just fights us. But sometimes spirit-filled Christians will so spiritualize everything that they don't recognize there are just some things that happen naturally. You know, if you aren't paying attention, and if you walk down the stairs and trip and fall, you could break a leg, you could break a collarbone, you could break your neck. You could have all kinds of things happen, and it's not the devil. It's not sin. It was just a natural thing. You hurt yourself, and you could have some sickness. You could get an infection. You could get swelling, all kinds of things. I've heard of people that dove off of cliffs, hit a rock in a pool of water, and you know broke their spine. Now they're paraplegic. That's not the devil necessarily that did it to them. The devil may have enticed them to do something that wasn't wise to go against their better judgment, but that's just a natural thing. If you get into a car wreck and if you cut your arm off in a car wreck, you can't say that that's the devil as such. It's just something natural. You know, since the fall, there are all kinds of things, germs, viruses, fungus, things that are now corrupted, that weren't corrupted, and they fight against the human body, and some things are just natural. I had a man come to me one time who was driving a nail. Uh, he was putting a roof on a house, and he hit a nail, and that nail broke, and it ricocheted off of the roof and stuck in his eye. And, you know, you could sit there and say, well, boy, that's the devil. Look what the devil did and all these things, but that's just natural. When you do things like that, mistakes happen. People are not perfect. People make mistakes. So these are three major areas. You can give an inroad to sickness through sin. You can give a... Satan can just be attacking you. It can be a spiritual attack that has no fault of your own that caused it. And matter of fact, sometimes when Satan is fighting against you and doing things, that's a very good sign that you're doing something right because Satan seeks to hinder people who are responsive to God and fighting him. You know, you can tell you've arrived in the promised land when you meet the giants. Man, when there's giants, when there's problems staring you in the face, sometimes that's an indication that you're doing things right instead of doing them wrong. And then thirdly, sometimes things just happen. They're natural. You fall off of a house, you're going to hurt yourself. You may break something, hurt something, and that's not necessarily demonic. It's not sin. It's just natural stuff that happens. So anyway, going back, these are kind of the reasons that sickness come they aren't always because of sin but nonetheless even though it may not be your individual sin maybe it's just something natural that happened i believe there's always something we can do about it since we've been redeemed from sickness and disease therefore we can take our authority use our faith and we can affect a cure whether it's a demonic attack whether it's something that just natural happened or even if it's our own sin that brought it on. We can repent of that, turn from it, and release the uh, forgiveness of God into our life. So regardless of how these sicknesses and diseases come, there's always something we can do about it. So Jesus went on after he rebuked his disciples in the 17th verse. He said in Matthew 17:18, Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? Now this question is what we're dealing with. If it's God's will to heal and Jesus healed this boy, why didn't the disciples see this boy healed? Why don't we, if you believe that it's God's will for every person to be healed, how come we don't always see every person healed? What are the reasons why a person isn't healed? 
First of all, before I answer that in the next verse, let me say this, that you've got to understand that these disciples who asked this question, why could not we cast him out? They believed it was God's will and that they had the power of God in their life to cast these demons out. Now, they had already been given power and authority to cast out demons. In the 10th chapter of Matthew, I believe it's also the 12th chapter of Luke and other places, Jesus gave them power over all unclean spirits, over all sickness and over all disease. And they went out and they even came back rejoicing that the demons were subject unto them through the name of Jesus. They didn't have a single question. There isn't any question recorded. What this means is that these disciples who were asking this question, why couldn't we cast him out? It wasn't because they didn't believe. They did believe. They had already exercised that power and they had seen results. And this is the reason they were confused. You know, if these disciples would have been saying, well, we don't believe that you can heal a lunatic boy, a person with a seizure. We just don't believe that God can do that. They wouldn't have asked this question. The very fact that they asked this question shows that they did believe, and yet they didn't get the results that they desired. Now, this is important. People who do not believe that God wants us well don't spend a lot of time wondering why isn't everybody healed because they don't believe it's God's will to heal everybody. The people who are really perplexed are the people who do believe it's God's will and yet are not seeing every single person healed or they aren't seeing themselves healed. Now, why is it that that happens? Look at what Jesus said. This is so revealing in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, Now, this is simple, but it's profound. And let me just say that this is different than what most people would say. If I hadn't have led up to this, if I hadn't have read this scripture to you, and if I was just to talk to you personally and say, why do you believe people aren't healed? Probably the typical answer is, well, they just don't have enough faith. Well, now that is true that if a person doesn't have faith, then that is going to affect their receiving healing. Every instance where Jesus ministered a healing, some degree of faith was involved. Now, some people may take issue with what I said just there because they think, oh, no, that's not true. And they'll cite an example like the seventh chapter of Luke where Jesus raised the boy from the dead at the city of Nain. I hadn't got time to go into all of this, but let me just say that there was a step of faith involved there. And uh, I've got teaching on that. I don't know if I'll have time to get to that. Maybe in the last tape, we will deal with this more. But I could deal with this and show you that in every instance that Jesus ministered a healing to somebody, there had to be some degree of faith. Now, sometimes people came to Jesus, like the woman in the fifth chapter of the book of Mark, and she said, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. And she touched Jesus' hem of his garment, and the faith of God just flowed. The power flowed, and this woman was healed. And the Lord told that woman, says, your faith has made you whole. Now, that's a strong faith. That's a faith that reaches out and takes what God has available. Not everybody exhibited that type of faith, but there had to be what I call at least a passive faith. You may not have the faith that reaches out and takes it, but if you are going to get healed off of my faith, off of my prayer, well, then you have to have at least a passive faith that will receive it if I will bring it to you. Now, that could be explained a lot more, and I think I'll try and deal with that on our last tape in this series. But I was saying all of this from uh, 
that if you were to ask the average person, why isn't everybody healed? Most people would just say, well, it's because they don't have enough faith. I think that's one reason. If a person isn't operating in faith, yes, that will hinder them from receiving. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say it's because they had little faith. He said it's because they had unbelief. Now, if some of you are reading this passage in the NIV version, it does say it's because you have so little faith. And I don't know what to say about that other than to say that that is just a terrible translation. That is not what it says. You look in the majority of the translations. It's not going to say little faith. It says it's because you have unbelief. And some people are thinking, well, what's the difference? If you have unbelief, then that means you got little faith. If you had strong faith, you wouldn't have any unbelief. No, I don't believe that that's so. See, most people have this concept that if you are believing God, then that automatically means you don't have any unbelief. And if you have any unbelief, that automatically means you don't have any faith. That if you are truly in faith, there is zero unbelief. That is not what the Word teaches. In Mark chapter 11, verse 23, it says, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now Jesus said you have to speak to this mountain. It's understood that you have to speak in faith. And then he says, Speak in faith and doubt not in your heart. Now, if faith, if you are in faith, means you automatically have zero unbelief, why would he have even said this about and doubt not in your heart? See, here's the point that I'm making. You can believe and disbelieve at the same time. As a matter of fact, let me turn to this same example that we're studying here and read it in Mark's account. In Mark chapter 9, I won't read all of it, but just the portion where it says in Mark chapter 9 verse 20, and they brought him, this is talking about the lunatic boy, unto Jesus. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tarried him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he, speaking of Jesus, asked the father of the boy, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. Oft times it hath cast him into the fire, and oft into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us, and help us. Jesus said unto him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, the father was seeing the manifestation of this boy having a seizure. He was feeling exasperated, frustrated, and he finally just said, If you can do anything, help us. He began to doubt. He began to despair. He was looking at the situation and saying, God, I don't know if you can even handle this. And Jesus turned around and instead of accepting all of that responsibility for this healing on himself. He turned back to the Father and he says, If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And then look how the father of this boy responded. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Jesus didn't say, Well, that's a stupid statement. If you believe, you shouldn't have unbelief. If you have any unbelief, then you aren't really believing. Jesus didn't rebuke him. He didn't say anything like that. He just turned around and cured the boy. And I believe that this is an accurate statement, that you can have faith and yet have unbelief at the same time. It's like if you had a wagon and you hooked up a team of horses 
and you started having them pull that wagon under normal circumstances they'd be able to move that wagon they'd have enough power to move the wagon but if you hooked an equal team of horses up to the other side of the wagon and had them pulling at the same time in an opposite direction, then you could have all of those horses pulling with their maximum strength and the net effect on the wagon would be zero because it would be counterbalancing forces. They would cancel out each other. They would negate each other. And this is what Jesus, I believe, is saying here. He didn't tell his disciples, it's not because you don't have enough faith. He says it's because you have unbelief. And your unbelief canceled out the faith that you had. These guys had had faith before. They had seen demons cast out before. They had seen people set free. This time they did the same thing, and yet they didn't get the same results. And they were confused because they knew they were believing God. That's why they had confusion. And so they said, why couldn't we cast him out? He didn't say it's your little faith. He said it's your unbelief. Now, those of you who may still believe that it should be translated because you have so little faith, look at the rest of this verse. Jesus goes on to say, For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Jesus said, if your faith is only the size of a mustard seed, I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed, but it is tiny, tiny, tiny. It's nearly like uh, one of those little poppy seeds that's on, you know, those buns and things like this. It's just tiny. It's, it's very small. The point that he's making is if your faith is minute, if it is even small, it's enough to cast a mountain into the sea. Now, see, the point that he's making is that you don't need big faith. You just need a faith that isn't canceled out, negated by unbelief, pulling in the opposite direction. And to prove that, he says, if your faith is only the size of a mustard seed, that's enough to remove a mountain without ever touching it physically by just speaking to it. You could have that mountain cast into the sea. Now, see, if what he was really saying is it's because you have so little faith, then he would have counteracted the point he was making when he starts talking about how if your faith is only the size of a mustard seed. Do you understand that? That it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. But if he was saying, guys, it's not the fact that you didn't believe, but rather it's the fact that you had unbelief that negated your faith. Let me give you an example of this. Not long after I saw the very first person raised from the dead, the first person I'd ever prayed for raised from the dead, man, I was excited. I was pumped. I thought that if you can see a person raised from the dead, then you know what? We can see blind eyes open, deaf ears open, people come out of wheelchairs, anything. And I was in Omaha, Nebraska, and I was holding a service there, and there was a man on the left front, my left front, who was sitting in a wheelchair. And I was so excited. I thought, God, I have seen you raise people from the dead. I know this person's going to be healed. I could hardly wait for me to get through preaching so I could go over and minister to this guy. So I went over to him. I grabbed him by the hand. And I said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And I grabbed this guy by the hand and I yanked him out of the wheelchair. And he just came right up and over and fell flat on his face. He was paralyzed. He couldn't stand up. He couldn't catch himself. And when that happened, you could hear the gasp, the groans, the unbelief. Uh, the shock of people, I was shocked. 
Man, I was embarrassed. I felt humiliated. I felt like, man, look what I've done to this man. I've embarrassed him, humiliated him. It was just a terrible scene. And I got down on my hands and knees. I wrestled this guy back, grabbed him around the chest, wrestled him back into the wheelchair, and told him, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. And yet I didn't give him what he needed. That man left in the wheelchair. And when I went back to the hotel room, I remember saying, God, why did that happen? And the thing that confused me is because I had faith. Some of you may think, oh, you know, you didn't have faith or he would have been healed. No, I had faith. I used my faith as far as I could tell, the same as I did on that man who was raised from the dead. I had just as much faith. It wasn't the fact that I wasn't believing God. You know what? You don't go up and grab a person out of a wheelchair and pull them out and see them fall on their face unless you believe they're going to walk. I didn't expect that man to fall. I expected him to walk. There was faith present. And because I had faith, I was confused, thinking about, God, I know I was believing you. I wouldn't have ever done that if there wasn't a faith present. But I didn't see the right results. And I got to asking God, God, why didn't it happen? And it took me about three years for my lightning fast mind to finally figure this out. But the Lord finally showed me that, Andrew, you did have faith, but you also had unbelief. You know what? When the people responded in unbelief, when there was shock, when there was panic, you know what? That was unbelief. I was more concerned about what other people had to say than I was about what God had to say. Look at this passage of scripture in John chapter 5 and verse 44. Jesus said, How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seeketh not the honor that cometh from God only? Well, that is a powerful passage of scripture. How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? You know what? If you are a man pleaser, If you have to have other people validate you to feel good about yourself, if you're worried about other people's opinion, that's the fear of man. And fear is an opposite of faith. Fear is actually faith in a negative direction. And I was worried about what people thought about me. I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. And you know what that did? It was unbelief, fear that negated my faith. Yes, I had faith, but I had unbelief. I was still swayed by what people thought about me, and it canceled out my faith. Now, the way I began to see this, I was reading a book about Smith Wigglesworth, and this book was written by his son-in-law, and he was telling how that Smith Wigglesworth used to start each one of his meetings by standing up on the platform and saying, whoever gets up here first will be healed of whatever disease you've got. And he would minister to them, see the person healed, And that would get everybody's attention. Then he would teach on how it happened. And at the end, he would have a prayer line and he would pray for multitudes of people. Well, there were some people that knew what he was going to do. And so when he said this about whoever comes up here first will be healed of whatever disease you've got. There were these two ladies on the front row who had a friend of theirs who was an elderly woman. She was so frail so weak that she couldn't even sit up by herself. They had to be one on each side of her and hold her up. And she looked like she was nine months pregnant. She had a tumor in her belly, and she was uh, in bad, bad shape. So they immediately grabbed her, 
and stuck her up on the platform. And so here these three women were, the two standing, one on each side, holding up this woman who had this huge tumor. And Smith Wigglesworth looked at him, and he said, let her go. And these women said, we can't let her go. She's too weak. She can't stand up on her own. They started giving an explanation, and Smith yelled at him, and he said, I said, let her go. So they let this woman go, and you know what? This woman fell right flat on her face, on top of that tumor, let out this groan of pain. People in the audience gasped. There was unbelief. There was shock. All of these same experiences, the same responses that I had when I pulled the man out of the chair. It was a similar type situation. You know how I responded? I had guilt, shame, fear of what other people thought. I was thinking lawsuit. I was thinking, you know, all these terrible things. You know how Smith Wigglesworth responded? He said, pick her up. So they picked this woman up. They had her standing once again in between them. And Smith said, let her go. See, it didn't faze him a bit. He wasn't moved. And they said, we won't let her go. We can't let her go. She'll fall. And he yelled at him and said, let her go. So they let her go. And the second time, this woman fell on her face on top of that tumor. And people in the audience were just, you know, shocked. There was moans and groans all throughout the audience. So Smith said, pick her up. They picked her up, standing in front of Smith Wigglesworth. He said, let her go. And these women said, we will not let her go. And Smith said, you let her go. And a man in the audience stood up and he said, you beast, leave that poor woman alone. And Smith Wigglesworth said, I know my business. You mind your own business. And then he turned back to those women and he said, let her go. And he yelled at him. They let her go and she started to fall, but she caught herself. That tumor fell right out of her dress onto the stage and she walked off perfectly healed. Now, let me suggest to you there. Here's what the Lord showed me that Smith Wigglesworth didn't have any more faith than I had. He didn't get any better results the first time he ministered to that woman than I got when I pulled that man out of that chair. He fell on his face. This woman fell on her face. But you know what the difference was? Smith didn't have any more faith. He had less unbelief. He didn't care what people thought about him. As a matter of fact, in this book, it was said that Smith was often criticized as being hard, harsh. And you know what the word hard means when you're referring to your emotions? It means cold, insensitive, unfeeling, or unyielding to what other people think. The difference with Smith and me was not that he had more faith than I had, but that he had less sensitivity. He was hardened towards what other people thought. He wasn't responding to anybody but what God had told him. And I still was too dominated by what I could see, taste, hear, smell, and feel, by people's attention, by my physical realm. So the difference wasn't that he had more faith in me. It was that he had less unbelief. Now, see, this is a concept that most people don't have. When people pray for a person to be healed, and if they don't see the person heal, they think, I just don't have enough faith. And so they start trying to build and increase their faith. They have this concept that they've got to have huge faith. But really, that violates what Jesus was teaching here in Matthew 17. He says, if your faith is only the size of a mustard seed, tiny, that's enough to remove a mountain into the sea. In other words, he's saying, guys, you don't need big faith. 
What you need is a pure faith that just doesn't have anything contradicting it, counteracting it, negating it, pulling in an opposite direction. And see, most Christians don't deal with unbelief in their life. Instead, they try and build faith. Unbelief comes very similar to the way that faith comes. Romans 10:17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In other words, faith comes when we focus our attention on God and his words. Unbelief comes in a similar way, the opposite direction. Unbelief comes when we focus our attention on what people have to say, on what the doctor has to say, on all of the negatives. If we consider all of these negatives, that negates our faith. And so the key to the Christian life isn't just learning how to develop this huge, strong faith. It's learning how to decrease the unbelief in our life. And very few Christians have that concept. Most Christians are trying to just, you know, they'll spend an extra hour a day in the Word trying to build their faith. But then during the day, they'll wash that down with, you know, two or three hours worth of as the stomach turns on the television, they'll read all of the bad news in the newspaper. They will allow the sewage of the world to flow through them, thoughts and uh, attitudes and concepts that are completely contrary to the Word of God. And then they will wonder why their faith isn't working. You don't need a huge faith. You just need a pure faith that isn't counterbalanced by everything else. Look over in Romans chapter 4. This is talking about Abraham and how Abraham believed God. And it says in verse 18, "...who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb." He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. This says that Abraham was not weak in faith, but because he considered not his own body now dead. See, again, Abraham didn't have a huge faith, a big faith, but he had a faith that wasn't negated, counterbalanced. By unbelief. He didn't consider anything contrary to what God said. It goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 11, still talking about Abraham, and this is in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 15. It says, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. This was talking about Abraham and Sarah, and it says, If they had been mindful of the country they left, or of the Chaldees, they would have been tempted to return. In other words, it's saying that your temptation is linked to what you think. Here is a radical statement. Boy, you need to get hold of this. This would change your life if you could understand it and apply it. You can't be tempted with what you don't think. You have to think it before you can be tempted with it. In the context of what we've been talking about, you can't be tempted with unbelief unless you think thoughts of unbelief. If we would quit listening to everybody else and all of their unbelief and the negativism of this world, the cynicism of this world, 
the anti-God, anti-Christ sentiment of this world, if we didn't ever listen to those thoughts, we wouldn't be tempted to disbelieve God. Do you know the people that I have found the hardest to be healed out of all professions is doctors, nurses, people with medical training. And you know why I believe that is? Because they have been taught certain things, and you may not think it's evil, all of the stuff that doctors are taught. It's not necessarily evil in that sense, but it's never presented as, well, here's here's what's going to happen when a person gets a tumor, and when it's at this stage, then they will die. But they never say, if God doesn't heal. Of course, this is, you know, we're just saying that they will die if they don't know how to trust God and believe God. They don't ever present it in a spiritual context and show that God is capable of overcoming anything. No, they just hear these thoughts that when a tumor is to this stage, they will die. They will have six weeks to live and that's it. They will die. This is incurable. And they hear these things over and over and over and over and over for years at a time. And then I've had some medical people come and try and receive their healing, and they just can't understand, why is it so hard for me? It's because they've been taught so much unbelief about how that you cannot overcome this. It's incurable. There is no way. And that unbelief negates their little mustard seed amount of faith. I tell you, this is a powerful, powerful truth. Jesus was saying that, guys, you don't have a faith problem. What you've got is an unbelief problem. You know what caused their unbelief? This is my own interpretation of it. It doesn't say very clearly, but it says over in Mark chapter 9 again, it says in verse 20, when they brought the demon-possessed boy unto Jesus, when the demon-possessed boy saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. I don't know if any of you have ever seen somebody with an epileptic seizure, but I tell you, it is a frightful thing, especially if they go to biting their tongue, swallow their tongue, or any of these kind of stuff. It's terrible. I've seen it. And I mean, it'll make all the hair raise up on the back of your head. You know what I personally believe happened? These disciples had faith. They had seen other demons cast out, other people healed. But this time, when they went to pray for this boy, there was a physical manifestation of these demons. The same thing happened to Jesus right here. But the difference is Jesus had zero unbelief to counter his faith. And so he was able to go ahead and effect the cure. But these disciples, they responded in unbelief. And that negated their faith. And so when they said, why couldn't we cast him out? God, I know I was believing. I've done it before. I've seen it happen. How come it didn't work this time? The Lord was telling him, it's because of your unbelief. And that is a powerful truth. And in the very next verse, this is back in Matthew chapter 17, verse 21, he says, how be it, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Boy, this is a great revelation right here. I've heard many people teach on this, that there are certain demons that are stronger than others, and some demons you have to pray and fast to get them out. And there's all kinds of variations on this. That is not what this is talking about. The subject of the previous sentence was not demons, but it was unbelief. Unbelief was the thing that stopped them from casting it out, and it says this kind of unbelief only goes out through much prayer and fasting. So apparently there's different kinds of unbelief. 
Again, I've this is just andeology. This is my own understanding. For time's sake, I'm just going to say these things quickly. You can go study it out and verify it. But I believe that there's three categories of unbelief. There's unbelief that comes through ignorance. Sometimes people are opposing what God says, not because of you know, anything specific. They just don't know any better. There's some people that don't know that God wants you well. They've never heard it. It's ignorance, but nonetheless, it's unbelief. The way you overcome that kind of unbelief is tell a person the truth. You show them the truth of the Word of God. And if they really are sensitive to that and respect the Word of God, you can overcome unbelief that comes through ignorance by showing a person the Word of God. The second type of unbelief is unbelief that comes through wrong teaching, wrong doctrine. There are some people that have been taught that God doesn't do miracles today, that healing isn't for us today, that these things passed away with the apostles. That's not true. That's not what the Word of God teaches. But nonetheless, they've been taught. It's harder to overcome unbelief that comes through wrong doctrine than it is unbelief that comes through ignorance because you have to counter the wrong doctrine and then teach them the truth. But the antidote is exactly the same. The answer for both of those two types of unbelief is the truth of God's Word. If you could sit down with a person and take the Word of God and counter their objections, then you can get rid of this unbelief that comes through wrong doctrine by showing them the truth. But then there's a third type of unbelief, and that's what I call natural unbelief. In other words, you just if you pray for a person to be healed, and if they fall over dead, your eyes, your ears, all of your senses are going to be telling you it didn't work. And that's not necessarily ignorance. That's not necessarily because of wrong doctrine. It's just that you have learned to trust what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. If you pray for your body to quit hurting, and yet your body can still feel pain, your body is going to be telling you thoughts of natural unbelief. It's not demonic. It's not wrong. Your five senses aren't of the devil. You know, if I wanted to go somewhere and you were going to drive me, I don't want you to drive me by faith. I want you to open up your eyes and look to see if there's a car coming before you cross the street. That's not unbelief. That's not wrong. But you know what? If God told you to do something and your physical senses tell you that it's not going to work, then you have to be able to go beyond those five senses. When God wants you to do something contrary to what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel, then just your natural five senses can give you thoughts of unbelief that can negate your faith. And I believe that that's what happened with the disciples right here. They saw a physical manifestation of this demon, and it just caused fear. It caused thoughts of unbelief, and that unbelief countered their faith. You know, the man that I saw raised from the dead, the very first one, it was just miraculous how it happens. Long story, but anyway, I just went over there. I didn't know what was wrong. I walked in, and I was standing in front of the man before I realized he was dead. And I heard his wife saying, Oh, God, bring Everett back from the dead. And when she said that's the first time I had even had a thought that the guy was dead. And when I heard that, I just looked at him and I said, Everett, in the name of Jesus, come back into your body. And the guy just sat up. It was that simple. If I would have had 30 minutes to think about this guy being dead, if somebody would have told me what I was going over to pray for him, 
about. I believe that my mind probably would have come up with enough thoughts of unbelief to negate and counterbalance my faith. But one of the reasons I saw this man raised from the dead is I just didn't have time to think about anything else. It was simple. I believe that these disciples had seen demons cast out before and there weren't the physical manifestations. And so they didn't have the same temptation of unbelief. But in this instance, there was a physical manifestation contrary to what they prayed for. And because of that, it caused thoughts of unbelief. And Jesus said the only way you can get rid of this kind of unbelief is by fasting and prayer. It's not just, you know, studying the word more, but you need to get into the presence of God and renew yourself to such a degree that in a sense, you develop a sixth sense. Now, this is important. You got five senses, what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. And you know what? If one of those senses was to be damaged, like say, for instance, if you went blind, you could still get around. But what you'd have to do is depend upon your hearing more, your touch more. You would feel the wall and walk along, or you would have a stick in front of you and feel if there's any variance in the ground in front of you. You know what? You would start relying on the other senses. You could still get around and walk. There are people who are blind who memorize what their apartment's like and where everything is. They can walk in the dark because they aren't using their eyes. They're using their ears, their touch, their feel. And so... You can compensate for that by using the other senses. Well, if you run into something where God told you to believe in healing and every one of your five senses is telling you, well, it didn't work. I still feel pain. I still look sick. I still have this. And I can taste, you know, something in my mouth that shows me that I hadn't been healed yet. If all of your senses are telling you it didn't work, you can sit there and develop a sixth sense that will tell you it did work and that sixth sense is faith you can get to where you actually believe that you have faith and that faith becomes as real to you as what you see taste hear smell and feel now how do you do that well you do it by spending time in the spiritual realm and that's what prayer and fasting is all about for instance here's the logic behind fasting fasting doesn't change god Fasting doesn't make God move. Fasting and prayer don't make demons leave. There is no demon that you will ever encounter that will have to have fasting and prayer added to what Jesus has done to cast him out. That's not true. If you encounter a demon that doesn't respond to the name of Jesus and faith in his name, then your fasting and prayer isn't going to get him out either. No, prayer Speaking the word of God in faith, the name of Jesus in faith will deal with any demon. So your fasting and prayer doesn't move God. It doesn't move the devil. You know what it does? It moves you. It affects you. When you deny your flesh, your taste, your appetite, that's one of the strongest desires that people have. And when you deny that, your flesh is going to rise up and rebel because it wants to be fed. It wants to be taken care of. And if you tell it, no, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, I can guarantee you, your flesh is going to rebel. You'll think you're dying by noon the first day. And that's not true. And if you persevere, you know what? After a while, your body will begin to learn. Your senses will begin to learn that, hey, I didn't die at noon. And as a matter of fact, after about three days on a fast, did you know you get to where you actually aren't hungry anymore? 
Some of you may not have experienced that, but it's true. You can literally bring your five senses under control and they begin to recognize that, hey, I'm not going to starve. It was okay. This faith stuff is real. You know what? You really can be sustained by God and not have food to sustain you alone. And you can teach your flesh that. And then when you tell your flesh and say, you're healed in the name of Jesus, your body will say, but I still hurt. And you say, yeah, but that sixth sense says that you're healed. And I believe it. And you say, okay, I've, I've experienced this before. But see, if you haven't spent time fasting and praying, if you haven't been in the presence of God, then when your body says, no, I still hurt, you're going to say, body, you get in line. And your body's going to say, who are you? to tell me what to do. I tell you when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat. And, you know, it's just like a spoiled brat. But you can train, you can exercise your senses to discern both good and evil is what it says in Hebrews 5, 14. And so as you do this, you can get to the place where, like Smith Wigglesworth, you are listening to what faith has to say more than what your mind has to say, that your emotions has to say, more than what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. And when you do that, what you're doing is decreasing the unbelief. And it's like it was saying over in Romans chapter 4, talking about Abraham, that when he was not weak in faith, how was it that he was strong in faith? Well, it's because he considered not his own body now dead, nor yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. I believe it's more appropriate to say that you're either strong or weak in faith, and what that's doing is describing how much unbelief you have mixed with your faith. If you have a lot of unbelief, then you're weak in faith. If you have little unbelief, then you're strong in faith. That's an appropriate description, whereas little faith and big faith is really not appropriate. The truth is, every one of us have been given the faith of the Son of God. I've got a tape on that, a single tape entitled, The Faith of God. And if you don't have that, you need to get it. It's also in this teaching, a four-tape album that I have on spirit, soul, and body. But every born-again Christian has the exact same amount and quality of faith that Jesus had. You don't have a faith problem. What we've got is an unbelief problem. And so instead of trying to build faith and build faith and get bigger and bigger faith, what we need to do is start stopping the unbelief. Turn off the sources of unbelief into our life. Starve our unbelief. Get to where we spend so much time in the spiritual world thinking on the things of God that we don't even have the same thoughts of unbelief. It'd be like Abraham. We don't even think about the fact that he was a hundred years old, his wife was ninety years old, and God had just promised them that they were going to have a child. It says he didn't even consider his own body now dead. That's a powerful truth. When it comes to ministering healing, it is not the fact that most people don't have faith. Now some people that's true. But with most people it's not the fact that they don't have faith, it's the fact that their faith is canceled out by the unbelief. And that's because they have not been spending time in the presence of God. They are so accustomed to the world. They are thinking thoughts of unbelief. They're thinking it's flu season. I know everybody else has got it. My father died with this same thing that's fighting me. And they think about all of these kind of things. And that unbelief negates their faith. And so the the key to victory 
in the Christian life isn't necessarily having this huge faith. It's just having a simple childlike faith, a faith the size of a grain of mustard seed that isn't canceled out by unbelief. Man, you need to unhook the unbelief that is pulling in the opposite direction and let your little mustard seed amount of faith pull you to victory. Now, this is important. Some people just think, well, it's because people don't have any faith. And if you use that as the only reason that people aren't healed, well, then that offends some people because they say, no, this person loved God. They were a great man or woman of faith. And they will just, I mean, summarily dismiss your criticism and say, that's not it. And they will say, it must not be God's will to heal. But see, that's not all there is to it. You can have faith. And you can be a great person and love God and have awesome faith and yet have unbelief that pulls you in the other direction. There's a lot more that could be said on this. I'm just running out of time on this tape. But I tell you, I encourage you to pray about this, to starve your unbelief, to get to where you are so single-minded on the things of God that your little mustard seed amount of faith will be enough to accomplish anything that you need. And it's not that hard to do. Unbelief has to be fed. It's like a leech. It's like a fungus. It has to be fed and nourished. And if you just separate yourself, even for a week, a week of fasting and prayer and focusing your attention on the Lord can do great damage to your unbelief. And it doesn't cause you, you know, God to give you more power. It just causes the faith you have to work so much better because you are diminishing the unbelief that is pulling in the opposite direction. And that's good news. God wants you well. And if you believe that, then all you got to do is starve the unbelief until your faith begins to start producing the results that you desire.